hope, something that gives a sense of joy, something that is going to communicate more than just the sorrows that we have been through this year. And that's what Advent is all about. In the same way Christmas is coming, that's what Advent means. It means coming. It means that something is drawing near. Something's approaching. Anticipation is building up. We're getting excited. That's what we're going to be talking about during these few weeks, talking about Advent. So we are looking back. We are reflecting back on Jesus' first coming, on his first Advent as a baby when he came to earth to live as a man. But we're looking forward to his second coming, his second advent. We are anticipating. We are letting excitement build as we look forward. And we wait. This is a time of waiting. And Paul wrote the book of 2 Thessalonians also to a people who were waiting. This church had received the gospel with joy. They had been firmly established. They were growing in their faith and in their love for one another. But they were also facing fierce persecution. They were enduring incredible hardship. And even though they were enduring these trials faithfully, they needed reassurance. They needed to know that their waiting was not in vain. They needed to be reminded of what it was they were waiting for. So Paul wrote this letter to them to help them to understand what it was they were waiting for and how they could continue to wait faithfully, patiently, steadfastly, even in the midst of persecution. So we're going to be going through this book, this letter from Paul, over the next few weeks. And we're going to be thinking about Jesus coming, both in the past, his first advent, but also this second coming. And we're going to see what we can learn here about what it is we're waiting for. And we also want to see how we can learn to wait more faithfully. This morning we're looking at chapter 1 and we're going to see what exactly what it is. Paul spells it out clearly what we're waiting for. And we're also going to see two things that he tells us we can do as we wait. So what we're waiting for is Jesus coming judgment. We are waiting for Jesus coming in judgment. And while we wait, we give thanks and we pray. So first of all then, we're waiting for Jesus coming in judgment. Now, that, that doesn't sound like such a good thing. We have difficulty in our society sometimes dealing with this idea of Jesus' second coming and this idea specifically of judgment. And for good reason. It's true that this subject has been abused. It's been misused tragically by the church in our country. I am certain, in fact, that there are many of you who have been, who, who have been attacked who have been intimidated by talk of the second coming. You've been threatened with the idea of Jesus coming in judgment to scare you into obedience and submission. But that is not what Paul is doing here. That is not what the truth of Jesus' second coming is supposed to mean to Christians. In this letter, in fact, Christ's second coming is not scary It's not intimidating. It is comforting. It's assuring. 
It doesn't cause anxiety. It brings peace and hope. And that's because the Thessalonians were suffering persecution for their faith. So the coming judgment of Christ promised relief to them. It promised an end to their unjust persecution at the hands of evil men. And in fact, all of those who are suffering, who are enduring injustice, they actually long for a day of final justice and retribution. That is a good thing to them. Theologian and professor of, at, at Yale, Miroslav Volf, uh, who was Croatian, and he endured, uh, he lived through the conflict that happened in the Balkans, the civil war there during the 90s. He says this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. We could draw another example from today, in fact. If you go to prisoneralert.com, which is a website run by Voice of the Martyrs, uh, a ministry uh, that promotes advocacy and support and prayer for Christians uh, who are suffering persecution. You see the story, for example, of Matthias Haj, who was arrested last year in February in his home in Rasht, Iran. His crime had been that he was helping to lead their church after their pastor had already been imprisoned and sentenced to a 10 years in prison. Matthias is serving a five-year sentence for the crimes of acting against national security and promoting Zionism. You can see his stories as well as many others. For him, for his family, for his church, and for many churches like it, the idea of Jesus coming again to enact Justice, real justice, is hope. It's assurance. We don't suffer that kind of persecution. We don't know what that's like, but we do endure trials. There are hardships and struggles that we must go through as a people, simply from living in this world, and God uses those things in our life. Calvin uh, says that these, these trials, God uses them so that we are polished under God's anvil. No, that doesn't sound pleasant. It's not pleasant. God is not the source of evil, but he uses the evils, he uses the injustices, the brokenness that we see in this world to teach us that we must put our hope in him and not in this world. So pandemics... Illness, violence and injustice, even abuse, all remind us that we were made for more than this. That the world as it is, is not the world as it should be. There is more that we're waiting for. More that we are hoping for. So we're waiting for the day when Christ is going to come, when he's going to remove sin and all of its effects from the earth. They will be purged away forever. We are waiting for and we're anticipating the renewal of all things when Jesus comes again. 
So this is a good thing. It is a positive thing that Jesus is coming to judge the earth, that he's coming to restore his fallen creation, that he's going to remove sin and all of its effects. But we do need to answer a very important question here, something we have to clarify, and that's this, that who will actually be facing judgment? It's a fair question, and we need to answer it. It's obviously those who have persecuted Jesus' people, those who have opposed his message, as Paul says, God will see fit to afflict those who have been afflicting you. But Paul also tells us that Jesus will enact vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, you might not be a persecutor of the church. You may, in fact, have never even vocally opposed the gospel. You may be not guilty of any gross uh, abuse or violence or injustice. But do you know God? Do you really know him? Not just a sense to his reality and existence, but he's real to you. Do you love him and do you trust him just as you would love and trust your own father? Do you even spend time with him? Is that time meaningful to you? If you do not know him truly, personally, and have that actual relationship with him, then you may also face judgment. And have you obeyed the gospel? That's a weird-sounding question to us, right? That sounds a bit strange. You don't obey the gospel. You believe the gospel. You accept the gospel, right? It's just good news after all. Well, there's a little bit more to it than that. One commentator says this, The gospel is both the promise and offer of salvation and the demand of obedience to its call. It calls humans to respond to the good news of God. But if the divine initiative is rejected, the very same gospel becomes the criteria by which God will judge that person. In the divine scheme, disobedience to the gospel is elevated to the status of a criminal offense. A thought quite different from the modern notion that the gospel should be simply should be received simply for personal benefit. Is that how you've seen the gospel? Something that's just there for your personal benefit? That you can take it or leave it, whether you feel like you need it or not? Has it not been made clear to you that the gospel is actually a call that you must obey, that you must respond to and act upon, If that's not been made clear to you, then you need to know this morning that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came, he was born, he lived among us as a man a perfect life, and he died a gruesome death on the cross, not because of anything he did. He was perfect in every way. But he died for your sin. He died for mine. He took our place and bore the wrath of God. And after three days, he rose again from the dead. He ascended back into heaven, and he is coming back one day, and he calls on everyone, everywhere, to believe him, to ally themselves with him, and submit themselves to his kingdom and his rule. Now, you can accept that. You can submit to that. 
and obey that call and ally yourself with Jesus, or you can refuse and call him your enemy. But I warn you, if that's the decision that you make, then you bring judgment upon yourself. But if you have obeyed the call of the gospel, if you do know God, you know him as your father, as your savior, but if you have been struggling through this time of waiting, if it has been hard, and not just this year, it's waiting in this, this time is just hard in general. What do we do? What can we do as we wait? The first thing Paul shows us is that we can give thanks. Verse 3 says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Ought. So giving thanks is actually something we ought to do. Something that's expected or commanded us of us even. Luke reminded us last week, in fact, that giving thanks in all circumstances is actually God's will for us. So giving thanks is what we ought to do. But it's also the right thing to do. Or we might say the proper, the fitting thing to do. It's right because God is our creator. We are his creatures. God is our provider, our sustainer, and we are his dependents. God is our king. We are his subjects, and so it is proper. It is fitting and right that no matter our circumstances, we acknowledge God by giving him thanks in all things. What specifically can we thank God for today? If that is our duty, what can we thank him for? Well, let's look at what Paul gives thanks for. He thanks God for the Thessalonians' abundant faith, for their love for one another, and for their steadfastness in the midst of their afflictions. When was the last time we thanked God for growing our faith in the midst of trials and hardships? God, I really want an end to this. I know that you will deliver me from this trial one day, but thank you for growing my faith in the midst of this. Have we ever thanked God in the middle of conflict and of strained relationships because God was helping us to love someone better, someone that we struggled to love? God, my heart is broken over this relationship and I am struggling so much just to get along with this person and be in the same room with them. But thank you that you are helping me to understand what it means to love him better. Thank you for expanding my capacity to love. Or do we ever thank God for helping us to remain faithful and steadfast in trials? God, I don't know if I have it in me to get through another day. But you got me through this day. Thank you. Thank you that I could stand firm. I didn't have it in me, but you carried me. Thank you. Do we pray like that? Do we thank God for those things? And notice also that Paul is not giving thanks for himself, but for them. Have we ever actually, have we stopped to thank God for what he's doing in the life of someone else? 
are, we just tend to focus on ourselves, on our own victories, our own struggles, but Paul's actually focused on the Thessalonians. He's thankful for how they are growing, for how they are maturing. So even in times when we might be struggling, when we are not being delivered from these trials and hardships, we can thank God for how he is at work in our families. How he's at work in the lives of our parents, our siblings, our spouse, our children, or even in the, among our neighbors. We can thank God for how he is active in the lives of our church community here. We can thank God for even what he's doing in the church around the world, among people we don't even know. Because the truth is that there is so much exciting happening. We hear the sad news. We hear the, the, the bad news all the time. But there is so much good that God is doing around the world today in the life of his church and in our own community. The gospel is advancing. God is present. People are being discipled. They are growing in their faith. Lives are being changed all around us. We can thank God for that. But first we have to take our eyes off of ourselves and start looking around us to see what God is doing elsewhere. There's one more thing, though, that we can be grateful for. And looking, let's look at verse 5. He says that their endurance is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, let me be clear here. Paul is not saying that our suffering in any way saves us or makes us worthy in some way of going to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying that when we endure hardships, when we suffer patiently and faithfully, showing grace under trial, then that is evidence. It is proof, not that God is angry with us, not that God is against us, but that God loves us. That he is with us. And in fact, he has already counted us as worthy to be members of his kingdom. By God's grace... We have been saved through Christ and God has considered us. He has reckoned us, declared us to be righteous in Christ. That's what it means to be justified. He's counted us as his children. He's adopted us into his family. But also God's grace, uh, he gives us his spirit to strengthen us so that we have the strength to endure and to wait and even to give thanks in the midst of difficult circumstances. When that happens, that is evidence. It is certain and clear proof, not of our own achievement, not that God is against us, but that God is for us, that he is active in us, that he has considered us worthy, acceptable to be in his kingdom. And for that, we must we most certainly ought to give thanks. Now, I realize that these, these things may be challenging ideas for us, this idea of giving thanks while we wait, but that, that actually leads us well into the second thing that we can do while we wait. And that is that we pray. Today, unfortunately, prayer is often treated, even by Christians, like it's, like it's some letter to Santa. 
We tell God what we want, what we think we need. We explain how we've been good, and we tell him why we should not be on the naughty list. That's not prayer. That is not prayer. Prayer is what sustains us while we are waiting. Prayer is an ongoing, life-giving, nourishing conversation and fellowship that we have with God, and it carries us through these hard times. Prayer is how we abide in and how we rest in Christ. It is how we walk by faith in the Spirit and in His power. Prayer is how we draw close to our Father. Prayer is so much more than just a wish list. It is a lifeline, which is why Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. That's so important to us to understand because right now we live in this in-between. We are in between who we are now and who we know we should be. Between the world as it is and the world as we long for it to be. We live between the sure promises of Scripture, the firm promises of the gospel, and their final fulfillment when Jesus comes again. This is what it means to live between the first and the second coming. And prayer, prayer is what fills that space. Prayer is what bridges that gap. It's what carries us from where we are now to where we will one day be. What can we be praying for? Again, Paul prays here for the Thessalonians, and we can see, first of all, what he requests for them, but also the outcome that he desires, that he prays for them. Paul requests that God would make them worthy of his calling. Now, wait a minute. What, we just saw that God already considered them worthy, so why does God now have to make them worthy? Well, the first one, the first, it refers to our justification. As I said, that God is considering us. He has counted us, reckoned us as righteous in Christ. He has called us worthy to be into it, and he's brought us into his kingdom. But the other then refers to our sanctification. God is also, in fact, making us Worthy. He is working on us to shape us, changing us so that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus. So God both considers us worthy, but he's also making us worthy. And God is using the trials, he's using the suffering, and yes, even the persecution that the Thessalonians were facing, that they had to endure. That is part of God's plan and purpose in making us worthy. So we can pray. We can pray in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulty, that God would be using it to sanctify us. And yes, it is good to pray for deliverance from suffering. Actually, we ought to be praying for an end to this pandemic. Pray for that. Pray for a cure. Pray for healing for those who are ill. Pray for peace and comfort for those who are grieving. But until that deliverance comes, until God sends that resolution, we can pray that God would use these things that are evil and that he would bend them and force them to his will. 
We can pray that God would show us how he is making us and those around us more worthy of his calling. That's the request he prays for them. And the outcome that Paul prays that he desires for the Thessalonians is that the name of Jesus would be glorified in in them and that they in him. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Um, Most days, probably about 99% of days, my primary goal, at least not conscious goal, is not that Jesus would be glorified in me and that I in him. It's just not. Most days, my goal is just to finish what I need to get done with the least amount of inconvenience and the least amount of interference possible. That describes most of my days. Some days, I do want to see, to see myself, to seek my own glory. I want to be glorified by my own strength. But most days, actually, I'll just settle for being comfortable. I'll settle for just it being a peaceful, easy day. I think that's where a lot of us are. But we were made for so much more than that. That's not what we were intended for. We were made to bring glory and honor and praise to the God who made us. The God who sustains us even now. The God who saved us and who is one day coming back for us. In our house, we ask our our boys the same catechism questions that I did when I was a kid. And maybe some of you do with your children. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? Well, God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Is that what we live for? Is that what we truly live for? Is that the outcome we desire in the midst of our waiting? If we're living for our own glory, then we will not be steadfast or faithful under trial. And this isn't actually something we can just fix on ourselves. I wish it was. I've tried. It's not something you can just change in of yourself. It's something that God has to do in us. And that is why we pray. So pray. Ask God, implore God, beg him to be glorified in us and that we would seek our glory in him. Ask that we would have a passionate desire for his glory above all else. That is, in fact, why Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed or glorified be thy name. But what does that actually look like? What would a life like that look like? Richard Wurmbrand was a uh, Romanian pastor and leader of the underground church uh, during the time of the Iron Curtain uh, under the communist regime. And he was arrested for speaking out against uh, the, the communist regime. He was imprisoned for eight years and tortured repeatedly. He, uh, he endured three years in, in complete isolation Finally, he was released, and, and different uh, Christian organizations were able to uh, negotiate his release. And he and his wife were brought to the United States where they founded Voice of the Martyrs, that ministry I mentioned earlier. But he also wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. 
which I highly recommend. Uh, in it, he, he details his story. He, he shares his reflections and some of his sermons from his time in prison. But he also shares stories of other persecuted churches and Christians around the world. In it, he shares this, um, <clears throat> this letter from Varya, a 19-year-old Russian girl who had been part of the communist youth organization but had been converted by the witness of a woman named Maria, who this letter is addressed to. She was arrested because she went back to her former colleagues to tell them that they too should repent and trust in Christ. She was sent to a prison a work camp in Siberia. She writes this to Maria. I can get through this. My heart praises and thanks God that through you he showed me the way to salvation. Now, being on this way, my life has a purpose. And I know where to go and for whom I suffer. I feel a desire to tell and to witness to everybody about the great joy of salvation that I have in my heart. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nobody and nothing, neither prison nor suffering. The sufferings that God sends us only strengthen us more and more in the faith in him. My heart is so full that the grace of God overflows. At work, they curse and punish me, giving me extra work because I cannot be silent. I must tell everyone what the Lord has done for me. He has made me a new being, a new creation of me who is on the way to perdition. Can I be silent after this? No, never. As long as my lips can speak, I will witness to everyone about his great love. Varya sent two letters after this, and she was never heard from again. Nineteen years old. This is the testimony of the Thessalonian church, of the persecuted church around the world today, who suffer and endure persecution and trial as they wait. And we may scratch our heads and wonder How in the world can such faith, such love and steadfastness exist in a world that is so broken, so full of evil and injustice? How does that happen? And we may rightly question ourselves, how could we ever show that type of steadfastness? Varya gives us the answer, in fact, in her letter. Christ has made me a new being, a new creation. And she's so certain of that. Nothing. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? No one. Nothing. This is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel has the power to do. 
See, it's not about us and in our strength being able to hold on to Christ, being able to hold on to the gospel. It's recognizing the reality that Christ has transformed us, that the gospel has so gripped us. We realize it can never let us go. No matter the trials, no matter the persecution, no matter how long we wait. And for that, we give thanks. We give thanks and we pray. We pray that God would continue to do that work in us because He is doing it. He is. He really and truly is. Right now, in you and in me, because that's what he's promised to do. It's what the gospel does. Let's pray.